Hey folks, another week, another special episode designed to help you navigate this election season. You're about to hear episode seven of Shared State, an amazing piece of collaborative journalism reported by Montana Public Radio, Yellowstone Public Radio, and Montana Free Press. To learn more about this important project and the big questions it investigates, I caught up with show host Sarah Aronson and editor Nick Mott for a brief conversation. Nick, Sarah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us, Justin. Good to be here, Justin. So we are talking about your new project, Shared State, a collaboration or a production of Montana Public Radio, Yellowstone Public Radio, and Montana Free Press uh, leading up to the November election. Sarah, you're the host. Nick, you are the editor. Tell us a little bit about how this project came to fruition. Why, Why this project? Why now? You know, I work at Montana Public Radio, and we've never done a collaboration of this scale before. So we're working, you know, with every public radio station across the state, Montana Public Radio and Yellowstone Public Radio and Montana Free Press, which is a, just a really incredible nonprofit news outlet. So we're working with really skilled audio reporters and print reporters. And we're doing it now because of November. You know, the election's coming right up, and it's a really big deal. It's a really major election, and there are a lot of issues beneath the surface of the ballot that I think in just sort of the daily news reporting get lost in how we're thinking about the candidates and what's at stake here. Absolutely. And Sarah, as the host, I mean, you're shifting gears a little bit from poetry and literature and your regular role in the right question. Uh, What motivated you to get involved in this project? Right. So I, um, as I was retiring from the right question, I knew I didn't want to leave the world of audio work because I find it so compelling. And um, Nick and I had been in a in a uh, sluggish exchange about, um, you know, what to do next. And then he and Mara Silvers tossed me this opportunity and I couldn't say no in part because of, um, yeah, how intriguing it is and also how relevant it, it is um, to the 2020 election. So I just jumped and said, yes. Absolutely. And, you know, we're what about seven episodes in the series is nine episodes. Um, Let's talk about some of the big questions here. I mean, you start out with this kind of framing around the Montana Constitution and this notion of Montana values. That's one of those interesting phrases that everybody uses, but nobody knows what it really means. And you try to to answer what it means. Nick, why, uh, why this structure and what have you learned about Montana values? You know, first of all, we hear about this sort of vague notion of Montana values from pretty much every politician on both sides of the aisle. And so we wanted to interrogate what that really means, if anything. And one way to do that, we discovered a really interesting lens is the Montana Constitution. Like the the Montana Constitution was totally rewritten in 1972 by these really amazing, this huge, amazing group of citizen delegates who were elected. And so for me, invest like looking into Montana values has also meant looking into Montana history and what that history means today. Well, I, I would say, and also how it's it's always being shaped by um, both the constituents of the state, you know, which we've experienced, there's a sort of a shifting tide happening right now, and also by the money that is influencing these elections, right? So like you said, Nick, there's sort of this like underbelly or undercurrent of things that it's important to to really investigate to get a clear understanding of the of the issues that might look pretty simple on a ballot. Yeah, as a listener, I've sort of had that experience of going to a Thanksgiving dinner and sort of feeling like your relatives are saying, hey, don't talk about politics, don't talk about religion. But then those conversations happen. 
And in this instance, they get really rich and you've got, you know, you've gone straight to the candidates. You've gone to some of the most prominent analysts of politics in our state, historians, et cetera. Let's talk about some of the voices you've been able to, um, to get into the mix here. I want to start by just saying, I think one of the most surprising factors, and I'm quoting Sarah Vowell here in saying that Montana's citizens are actually more interesting than its politicians in a way. And to me, that's been the most intriguing and surprising element is it's your everyday citizen in this state that is, you know, has a giant um, landmass with a sparse population that every citizen actually has the ability to have a voice. And it's often those people that have the wealth of experience that really makes for good content. Yeah, and we try to balance those voices. So we hear from people like Sarah Val, who's a former This American Life contributor and now a contributed contributor to the New York Times, an author. And we hear from Montana politicians, but we also hear from from everyday folks. And you know, we've really covered issues that run the gamut. Like we've covered LGBTQ rights and abortion, and public lands, and you know, indigenous access to the ballot box, and. Um, mask protests and militias and dark money. You know, and one of the things that occurred to me listening to the to the series so far is, is you're 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 able to sort of sort of hold the lens at two different levels. I mean, I feel like I'm learning about these broader issues and their place in, in, in Montana history and, and how they're sort of changing and changed over time, but also. I feel like I'm learning a lot about the candidates running for office now. So I feel like a bit of a more informed voter. I mean, Sarah, maybe talk about that experience of kind of operating in the immediate plus the historical. Right. So I, um, I don't have to do the heavy lifting of being an investigative journalist or a news reporter who's tracking down and talking to candidates. But what I learn um, as being a part of this collaborative project is is how we can, I think, mistakenly attribute, you know, ideas of Montana and values and how they show up in coded language for candidates. And I I think really the work of the show is to tease out and try to identify the narrative threads and the arcs of these giant themes and to appropriately place them in the context of our history and our constitution and then really understand them as they um, play out in this you know, these last few weeks leading up to the election. For sure. And and Nick, as the editor, how are you making choices about these concepts? You know, this has been a huge learning experience for me. I've done a lot of local reporting, but mostly on the environment and public land, and also done a whole lot of long form producing and reporting on podcasts like Threshold and Richest Hill. Um, But here is the first time I'm working with this really big team and trying to figure out how to take all these ideas coming from all these different people and put them together and to put them together in like a way that forms a story arc and to be able to tell listeners stories about all these different ideas and political issues. Like it's been a super rewarding and eye-opening learning experience for me. Well, let's talk a little bit about the episode that listeners are about to hear. Um, episode seven, Equality of Opportunity. Uh, Sarah, maybe start with you. What what set us up for this episode? What are folks about to hear? Right. So Yellowstone reporter and Report for America uh, reporter Caitlin Nicholas is taking us into indigenous access to voting. And um, she sort of has like a three-part approach to, to really breaking down for voters what have been the access obstacles for this particular population. And um, 
I, th- I, I, I think listeners will find it um, intriguing, a good story, great voices, um, steady reporting, and hopefully we'll come out more informed so that we can be better advocates and allies. Yeah, the thing I'd add to that is, you know, the whole s- season of the show is structured around the preamble to the Montana Constitution. And so the phrase we're at in this episode is equality of opportunity. And so instead of looking at a single political issue, we're looking at equality of opportunity and getting to the ballot box and getting your voice heard. And it's a lot trickier than you would think, turns out. Yeah, so listeners have to stay tuned and check that out. So let's... uh share with people where they can go to find this content. If you like what you hear next, uh, where do you want folks to go to listen, subscribe, all those good things? Yeah, subscribe on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen online at either the Montana Free Press, Montana Public Radio, or Yellowstone Public Radio uh, website. So yeah, if you if you like what you hear, please subscribe and you know leave us, send us an email, send, write us some comments. We'd love to hear what you think. Awesome. Well, Nick Mott, Sarah Aronson, Congratulations on this achievement, this collaboration, as you, as you talked about it. And thank you so much for this work. I think it, it makes all of the listeners better off. And um, yeah, here we go. Shared State, Episode 7, Equality of Opportunity. There's a voter registration table in front of a laundromat in Crow Agency, just off the interstate in southeast Montana. Workers wearing masks and carrying clipboards Greet drivers as they pull alongside bright orange traffic cones. This is one way our elections look different in 2020, as COVID-19 shapes where people go and how they interact. To a lot of us, voting feels like a complete mess right now. As the country decides between voting by mail or standing in long lines at polling places, health experts say voters will need to weigh the risk. You have been charging for months that mail-in balloting is going to be a disaster. You say it's rigged, that it's going to lead to fraud. If we're in a position where hundreds of thousands or millions of ballots in decisive states can't be counted until after election night, that is going to be an explosive situation. For the first time, almost every county in Montana is using all mail-in ballots this election season. Voters can still drop off their ballots in person if they want, but experts say mailing ballots is the best way to make the election accessible during the pandemic. This new system is bringing with it all kinds of uncertainties about logistics, reliability, and the time frame of the results. Still, election officials are trying to figure out how to make it work for everybody. I'm Sarah Aronson, and this is Shared State, a podcast about what's driving Montana's 2020 elections and where the outcomes could lead us. This week, equality of opportunity. Instead of looking at a political race or an issue on the ballot, we're focusing on the act of voting, participating in the democratic process here in Montana. In theory, the ability to vote is a promise that each and every person can make their voice heard and impact how government functions. But this promise hasn't always been kept. As long as we've had elections, we've had groups fighting to be heard equally. And right now, Indigenous voters and activists in Montana are pushing to make sure that promise turns into reality this November. At the ballot box, or rather the mailbox, whose voice is heard and who gets left out? 
We the people of Montana, grateful to God for the quiet beauty of our state, the grandeur of our mountains, the vastness of our rolling plains, and desiring to improve the quality of life, equality of opportunity, and to secure the blessings of liberty for this and future generations, to ordain and establish, do ordain and establish this constitution. Caitlin Nicholas is a reporter for Yellowstone Public Radio and Report for America. She's going to take it from here. The 2020 election is just the latest chapter in a long saga of voting in Indian country. The federal government technically gave Native Americans the right to vote almost a century ago. Back in 1924, after years of claiming their land and forcing them onto reservations, Congress finally offered indigenous people citizenship. But lots of states found loopholes to keep those rights from being realized. Here in Montana, a law passed in the 30s said in order to vote, you also had to pay taxes. Native Americans on reservations were exempt from property taxes because of treaty laws and the fact that the land was theirs in the first place. So many of them still couldn't vote. That law was on the books for decades. Then a game changer came in the 1960s. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. That's President Lyndon B. Johnson in March of 1965. He's talking to Congress about a piece of legislation called the Voting Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act had passed one year earlier, but racial inequality was still rampant. One place where it was especially blatant was the voting process. This legislation would explicitly ban any sort of racial discrimination at the polls. There is no issue of states' rights or national rights. There is only the struggle for human rights. Montana Senator Mike Mansfield jointly introduced the bill. Johnson signed it a few months later. It was a landmark law that helped expand voting rights all across the country. But in his speech, LBJ was clear. This was just one step in what would be a long and hard-fought process. But even if we pass this bill, The battle will not be over. And here in Montana, more than 50 years later, that battle is still going on. I'm focusing on three big voting rights cases in Montana history. Cases that show how one vote can be made to have less value than another or be blocked from getting to the ballot box at all. Two of those cases happened in our past, and one is happening right now. Janine Pease played a key role in one of those court cases back in the 1980s. It was all about how lines that group voters together get drawn in local elections. But it would become one of the most influential cases on Native American voting rights in the country. Oh, glad to finally meet you, Kate. I know, it's nice to meet you. I talked to Janine on her mom's porch in Billings. She's a voting rights advocate who's worked in public education for over 50 years. We don't ignore the experience of our grandparents and our great-grandparents. It's a collective memory that sort of weaves its way into the voting experience. Janine is a Crow tribal member. 
Back in the early 80s, she was living on the Crow Reservation where she started noticing troubling patterns of discrimination. Friends and neighbors talked about their driveways being filled with snow while nearby white farmers' roads were cleared. She heard complaints of trash services that wouldn't operate on the reservation and school bus routes that didn't include reservation pickups. There were election officials who didn't allow the Crow language to be spoken at the polls, even though not all Crow Nation citizens spoke English. This stuff is rotten to the core. Rotten, I tell you. To Janine, this was all connected to elections and who held political power. Bighorn County, where she lived, has two reservations partially within its boundaries, the Crow and Northern Cheyenne. At the time, 46% of the county's population was indigenous, but all the election commissioners and local representatives were white. We don't live in a hierarchy of government. We don't. Most of our lives are dependent on very local, the lowest level, the lowest common denominator government. That you elect into place. That's right. She wondered, why did the local government look that way? She started looking at the districts and precinct lines in Bighorn County. And she realized the district lines cut straight through the reservations where Native voters were the majority. That meant tribal members were split apart, making them look like the minority in each part of the county. So when it came time to vote for county commissioners of each district, the people who oversee road maintenance, law enforcement, trash collection, and most everyday services, white voters had a much larger say than Native voters. As a result, there had never been a Native county commissioner for Bighorn County. Another term for this is diluting a vote, watering down the power of a voting bloc by putting those people in different districts. Janine started organizing community meetings and pointed this out to the election officials. We went to the county commissioners and said, you know, we think you should redraw the lines because after all... The commissioners refused. After more meetings and hearing more stories of indigenous people being ignored by their representatives, Janine took the county to court with the help of the American Civil Liberties Union. It's a nonprofit that represents groups fighting for their civil rights. The case went on for more than three years. And during that time, Janine said she wasn't on everyone's good side. I mean, this is serious stuff. You are persona non grata. You're rocking the boat. You're going to change the system. People call you names. Finally, in 1986, the court ruled in favor of Janine and the ACLU. The reasoning came back to the Voting Rights Act. The judge found the county intentionally discriminated against Native Americans. The federal Justice Department made election officials redraw the lines in Bighorn County so districts would reflect what the population actually looked like. There would be one majority Native district, one majority white district, and one split. Just a year later, a Crow tribal member was elected as county commissioner, the first in Bighorn County's history. But the Voting Rights Act we heard LBJ talking about earlier didn't just cast a magical spell that suddenly solved voting access across the country. After going to court, Janine understood that actually getting to vote and knowing that it counts would never be a given. The thing that I was so amazed about all of this is that there is no enforcement of the Voting Rights Act unless it comes up through the courts. In other words, exercising the right to vote is kind of like whack-a-mole. Every time advocates like Janine tackle one problem, another barrier pops up. And usually it takes a lawsuit to get the government to pay attention. In the years after Janine won, 
There were many other cases that addressed this same problem of diluting votes in Indian country for legislative districts and school boards all around Montana. Through these lawsuits, the maps that make up our voting landscape keep getting redrawn to be more fair, bit by bit. Let's go to 2012. We're still in Bighorn County, and another court case that would shape voting rights in Montana is about to begin. But this time, instead of hashing out the lines that group us together in different districts, it's all about where people can actually cast their ballots, as in the physical polling locations. Dulcie Bear-Don't-Walk was pretty new to being Bighorn County's election administrator when she was given an envelope. Six months on the job when I got served with the papers uh, for the lawsuit. Um, basically, The day before, a group of tribal members asked Bighorn County for a closer place to register and cast their votes in the upcoming election. That's because the county is geographically huge. Like, bigger than Connecticut. So it's not heavily populated, but it's very spread out. At the time, the only place for late registration and early voting was in Hardin, the county seat. Driving any distance in Montana can be a real pain, especially in November. Tribal members were worried that reservation residents who didn't have access to transportation were going to struggle to vote. But the county said, no, we can't do that. I don't think it was ever that we disagreed with it. I believe it's that it was funding and staffing because at the time I did not have any deputy and I was the sole, sole provider, I guess. <laughs> to be cliche like the song, I was the sole provider. <laughs> they were just waiting for a no. <laughs> right, they, were, they, had, they were prepared. They were prepared, they were prepared. So we got served with the lawsuit and the plaintiffs from the Crow Reservation joined up with residents from Northern Cheyenne and Fort Belknap, too. For them, it was a much bigger issue than adding one alternative election office. They said, while it may not have been intentional, the locations and hours of registration and polling sites around those reservations were disenfranchising Native American voters. John Ellingson is retired now, but at the time he was an attorney working on the case from the ACLU of Montana. At stake is, you know, this kind of fundamental issue uh, that we face throughout the United States, uh, you know, even as we speak. Uh, do we want to make the right to vote uh, as easily exercisable as possible? Or uh, do we think that some impediments to voting are okay? In this case, those impediments were driving distances. One study done by a geography professor at the University of Wyoming found that in all three counties involved in the case, Native Americans had to travel two to three times as far as whites to get to the county courthouse to vote. In Rosebud County, where Northern Cheyenne residents were voting, they had to drive an average of almost 45 miles to a ballot box, each way. But there's more to the problem than just distance. Driving that far means you need to have a functioning car. It means you need to have money for gas, time off work, and so on. In Montana, voters don't have to register by a certain date before the election. Even on election day, you can still register and cast your ballot. But John says, anyone who has to get in a car and find the time to drive 45 miles to an election office doesn't really get the same benefit of late registration. 
the theory behind the case was that Native American vote, the Native American vote was suppressed because a large portion of the Native American population could not take advantage of the ease of late registration and uh, same-day voting that the white population could. John said the counties originally pushed back on creating remote registration and polling locations because it was going to be expensive and inconvenient. Bear in mind, too, that the power structure in these uh, counties is typically dominated by white folks. And we cannot escape our legacy of racism in Montana. Part of that legacy is that priorities of people in power are built into policies. And John says if a system or law has bias, and you're not the one who's missing out or hurt by it, for example, the polls being too far away. You know, it's, it's not a big problem to you. You don't see it. I talked with another ACLU attorney that worked on the case, too. Alex Rate. On a personal level, this was one of the most challenging experiences of my legal career. In the end, the case was settled. All parties agreed there would be alternative election offices on the Fort Belknap, Crow, and Northern Cheyenne reservations. But they'd only be open two days a week. Remember? Whack-a-mole. That was a bitter pill to swallow um, because we felt like the, what, what Indigenous voters are entitled to is, is our fully staffed satellite voting locations that are um, open through the duration of the early voting late registration period. Alex said, still, that settlement was an important first step. But certainly not the end of the road as it relates to ensuring full and free access to the ballot box for Indigenous voters. That case still looms large for Native American voting rights in Montana. But more recently, another lawsuit took center stage. Not about redistricting or polling locations, but about how mail-in ballots can be collected and transported, and by who. This September, a collection of tribal governments in Montana and the ACLU took the Secretary of State's office to court. Again. In the middle of a pandemic, a packed courtroom took on a different meaning. All right. The judge, her clerk, and assistant sat at their desks with masks on. Attorneys, tribal members, state officials, and Native rights activists joined remotely and muted themselves. I sat in the gallery, mostly alone. But there was an invisible digital crowd watching online as well. Because this case between tribes and Native rights organizations in the state would have huge implications for voting right now, in this election. To understand the case, we have to go back to this law Montanans voted for in 2018. The Ballot Interference Prevention Act, or BIPA, it says one person can only collect six ballots, and that the person doing the collecting has to know the people they're collecting for. It was meant to protect against voter fraud, and if you violate it, you face a $500 fine. That law was written by Republican State Senator Al Oshesky. We also heard from him back in episode three. I uh, represent uh, Senate District 6, which is the confluence of the Flathead and Lake counties. Olszewski said he wrote the bill after one of his constituents, an elderly woman, told him this story about two men coming to her door and demanding her ballot. 
she was felt intimidated and was scared. And so she filled out her ballot and gave it to him. And then after they left, she called the police and the police told her that there's no law and you didn't have to give you up your ballot. It's hard to know what exactly happened with this woman in the flathead or who these men were and why they wanted her ballot. But in our interview, the senator spoke at length about the threat of out-of-state ballot collectors who deliberately harass and intimidate vulnerable populations and don't have their best interests in mind. Olszewski felt BIPA was a solution. This kind of intimidation and fraud hasn't been explicitly proven in Montana. We'll dig into that a bit later. But in 2018, BIPA was a ballot initiative that more than 60% of Montana voters supported. The people have spoken through the highest form of democracy called uh, an election process, through an initiative. But for a lot of other groups, BIPA created a whole bunch of new problems. Some advocates said it could negatively impact vulnerable voters who have fewer resources and can't deliver their own ballot, like elderly citizens in nursing homes, college students living on campus without a car, or tribal members living on reservations far from the polls. So several tribes and advocacy groups sued Secretary of State Corey Stapleton's office, which brings us to early September. Sitting in court, I watched the nitty-gritty proceedings unfold. The trial went on for almost a full week. Here's what stood out. The plaintiffs needed to set up what ballot collection actually looks like on reservations. Alex Raitt, the attorney on the last case we heard about, was also involved in this one. He questioned Marcy McLean, the head of Western Native Voice, a nonprofit that advocates for Native American representation in Montana politics. And what is ballot collection? It's uh, where we pick up ballots from people in the community when asked to do so and deliver them to the county election office. And do you hire community organizers in the communities where they live? Yes. Why is that important? Because they are a trusted voice and they know their communities as opposed to somebody from the outside coming in. So people collect absentee ballots from tribal members, often their own neighbors many of whom live far from ballot boxes at the county courthouse or the post office, and take them to where they need to be. Marcy went on to say that in the 2018 election, community organizers with Western Native Voice collected and delivered almost 1,000 ballots. That's nearly 10% of all absentee ballots cast in precincts containing reservations. To advocates for Native voting rights, ballot collection means something very different than it does to Senator Olszewski. They say it's a critical part of increasing voter access in Native American communities. Without ballot collection, voters would have to physically get to the polls or the post office. That can be tough. It's an example of voter costs, the things that make it harder for someone to cast their ballot. And lots of these costs overlap with other challenges on reservations. Shelley Fiant is chairwoman of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes. In court, she said poverty impacts a lot of decisions being made on the reservation. And I think more so at the end of the month, um, when people's funds run out, sometimes we have to make choices between buying a tank of gas or you know, buying food for a family. Many of BIPA's supporters suggested that if driving was a problem, then citizens could just vote by mail. But witnesses testified that mail-in voting was nearly as difficult an option as driving to the county seat. Delina Cuts the Rope is the chief administrative officer and an enrolled member in the Grovant tribe of the Fort Belknap Indian community. 
She talked about the lack of mail delivery on the reservation. Most folks don't just live alone. They live with multiple families. And so most folks will share a box at the post office. Putting a ballot in the mailbox isn't as simple as it sounds. Just like going to the polls, Indigenous voters often have to go far from home just to check or send mail. The important takeaway about the literature on vote by mail is that, like all these other variables, vote by mail reduces voter costs for most people. But for Native Americans, it's, it increases voter costs. That's Daniel McCool, a political science professor at the University of Utah. He also testified as an expert witness, one of seven people who took the stand for the plaintiffs over nearly four days. The defense, the Secretary of State's office, only called two people to the stand. Their testimony took about half a day. One of those people was Dana Corson, the Director of Elections. The integrity of the election for me is measured by voter participation, giving people the opportunity to vote, that have the ability to vote within the confines of, of law, making sure that uh, votes that are cast count. When he said, within the confines of the law, he had very particular things in mind. He talked about voting by mail or driving to a polling station or county election office, not collecting dozens of ballots. Basically, Corson said BIPA helped make it clear who was picking up ballots and how they were collected. And that... Builds more confidence in the long run in the election systems in Montana. Senator Olszewski, who wrote the bill, said BIPA would protect the election system from fraud. But in the court case, voter fraud was barely discussed at all. That's because, since the 1980s, there's only been one documented instance of fraud in the state, and it didn't involve ballot collection. The state's expert witness was their last to take the stand. M.V. Hood, a political science professor at the University of Georgia, testified that state governments have the right to regulate elections to be free of fraud even if that fraud is only theoretical. Again, I don't argue with the fact that there seems to be uh, little or no evidence directly of <clears throat> absentee ballot return fraud, uh, but in my opinion, again, it doesn't prevent the state from implementing a regulation to prevent that in the future. So this was the heart of the case. On one side, tribal members saying that BIPA made it harder to vote, and on the other, the state saying it was the government's job to run elections and increase security however it sees fit. As the trial started to wrap up, the clock began to tick. And the court is painfully aware of the timeline that we are under. So. That's Judge Jessica Fair just before the court adjourned. The way she ruled would shape how the election unfolded in October and November and how Indigenous voters would be able to participate. After Fair banged her gavel, I went home. For a while, I kept refreshing Yellowstone County court updates, waiting for a decision. Nothing came. And then, on a Friday afternoon two weeks later, just over a month before the election, it happened. But first we start in Yellowstone County, where a judge has tossed out a 2018 Montana law restricting the number of ballots that can be dropped off at an election office. Judge Jessica Fair ruled today that the ballot interference... In her decision, Judge Fair didn't focus on the Voting Rights Act. She talked about the state constitution. Here's part of what she wrote. 
The questions presented relate back to the basic and fundamental rights set forth by those intrepid Montana pioneers that convened Montana's Constitutional Convention and arrived at a document that protects all Montanans, irrespective of race, color, or creed. Based on that, Fair found that BIPA was unconstitutional. She ruled it disproportionately suppressed Native votes and would have a chilling effect on providing vital services to increase voter turnout. Because of this ruling, ballot collection this October and November can continue. The case made me think back to Native rights activist Janine Pease. Since that case about how district lines diluted votes in Bighorn County more than 30 years ago, she hasn't stopped working for voting equality. You know, if we had just done that in 1982, you know what? That's all we'd have. But guess what? We started there and we're still working hard on it. Mm. It's, it takes a lot of vigilance and that's just not vigilance for a year, it's, it's for decades. By some metrics, that vigilance is paying off. In 1989, less than 1% of Montana state lawmakers were native. Today, there are 11, which is over 7%. That just about matches the indigenous population in Montana as a whole. We're one of the few states with so-called racial parity in the state legislature. But native representation in statewide positions has much further to go. This effort to increase native voter turnout and representation, it isn't going to happen overnight. As Janine puts it, that work is ongoing. My recognition, my revelation is that Voting rights takes vigilance in Indian country. There's no way you cannot pay attention to it. You have to study, you have to get into the details, you have to get into the weeds. Shared State is made by Montana Free Press, Yellowstone Public Radio, and Montana Public Radio. This episode was reported by Caitlin Nicholas. Nick Mott is our editor. Mara Silvers is our producer. Editorial assistance comes from Nikki Willette, Corn Cates Carney, Brad Tyre, and John Adams. Next week, the blessings of liberty. How are competing ideas of freedom and choice influencing Montana politics? If you're just joining us, check out our podcast feed for our other episodes. And if you like what you hear, share them on Facebook, Twitter, or by email. And you can also leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people become part of this conversation. I'm Sarah Aronson. Thanks for listening.